You're tuned into How to OT, making research more accessible and more consumable for the occupational therapy practitioner. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. On today's episode of How to OT, we talk with Dr. Susie Stark on the importance of environmental modifications for function and fall prevention and how you can incorporate them into your practice. Today I'm joined by Dr. Susie Stark, who is a licensed occupational therapist, a PhD, and an associate professor of occupational therapy, neurology, and social work at Washington University in St. Louis. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Susie, you have a lot of current research interests, but most of them include home modification interventions to support aging in place and the implementation of evidence-based interventions. What led you to study these topics? So uh, when I was a new, newly minted occupational therapist, I started out as a practitioner. I didn't start out with the idea that I would be a scientist, um, but I became frustrated early in my career with how we were practicing as OTs. And so the, the example that I have is I was delivering a home care intervention, and I asked to have a bathtub bench approved by an insurance company for one of my patients. The patient had just had a, a hip replacement because they'd fallen, and they needed this modification in order to bathe independently because currently the person was getting a, an aid that was coming into their home three to four times a week to help them um, bathe and dress and get ready for the day. And I said, you know, for a $200 charge for a bathtub bench I could, and a long-handled shower, I can get this person independent and bathing, and they can, uh, we can discharge this home health aid and save the government so much money. And I was told that, A, there was no evidence to support home modifications, and, and B, that's just not how the way things were done. So that story stuck with me, and it frustrated me. Um, that we didn't have evidence and that we didn't have interventions that were approved by insurance companies um, that would allow somebody to be independent with equipment. And so I started rethinking our profession and what we needed to do to change how we practiced and um, what, what, how we could demonstrate our effectiveness using these kinds of compensatory strategies to get people independent. So that was why I started this journey of looking at at what we can do to change practice. Um, The other thing that I was really impressed by was the idea that not all of our patients had the capacity to to kind of remediate whatever their problems were. I noticed there were lots of folks that seemed to be left behind because they couldn't, we couldn't fix them, you will. And I became really interested in how we could compensate for what they couldn't do and I became very, very focused on not fixing people or improving them, but how we could allow them to be who they were and still be successful, independent, um, happy human beings. So I became really interested in context and environment and how it matters to everyday activities and participation in our society. So those are kind of the, the reasons that I became a scientist that studies how the environment can influence um, occupational performance and participation. Thank you for that background. Mm-hmm. And you've obviously done a lot in the research realm since dedicating 
your time to be a, a full-time scientist. Can you share with us maybe some of the research uh, that you've done as of late in, in support of uh, this environmental and contextual approach to, to occupational therapy? Sure. So just kind of a little brief history um, that when you start a new area of science, it's not you, you, you don't get to just leap in, unfortunately. I had to spend a, a few years doing some things that weren't um, as exciting. I had to spend some time developing new measures, for example. Um, as occupational therapists, we didn't have good measures of um, person-environment fit. So I spent some time developing strategies to learn how to deliver behavioral interventions in a, in a way that was rigorous so that we could test them. So learning those approaches along the way, kind of figuring out what, what I needed to do in order to rigorously test occupational therapy interventions was the first step. And that led to some really fun, exciting areas of research that I've been involved in that are just so um, satisfying and, and uh, these days. And so one area that I'm really interested in is understanding how environmental modifications can be provided in a way that improves an individual's functional independence at home. And so we are right now working on a few trials that are looking at that potential uh, mechanism for improving uh, outcomes after hospitalization. The other area I'm so interested in is fall prevention. Um, while I was working away on home modifications to improve function for older adults, one of my community partners at the, in a naturally occurring retirement community here in St. Louis asked me if I would give a talk on fall prevention. Um, this was some years ago, and I decided if I was going to give a talk on fall prevention, I should learn a little bit about it. And I was flabbergasted to realize the devastating effects of fall on older adults. Even as a healthcare provider, I wasn't truly aware of of how devastating falls can be for older adults. Um, so that that's the other area of focus that I have is looking at how modifying the environment, in this case, removing hazards in the home can reduce the risk of falls for older adults. Um, and that is my big message. That's what I want occupational therapists to realize. Home hazard removal is highly effective at reducing fall risk, particularly for high-risk fallers, really frail older adults. What we do is really, really impactful and can make a huge difference in the world. So those are the two foci of my work right now, is fall prevention and improving function at home. Thank you very much. And I know it may be more common in occupational therapy to hear about home modifications, um, but a little bit less common to hear about home hazard removal. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to ask you if you could maybe go a little more in-depth even on the difference between your fall prevention interventions and your functional improvement interventions. Sure. So um, I will tell you the story I, of my failed research um, project. When I started, and I was so um, impressed by what I learned when I was um, getting prepared to do the talk for that community agency, that I decided that I would see if the intervention I developed, home modifications to, reduce, to improve function and ADL performance, would actually work to reduce fall risk. And I had a lovely hypothetical model, and we knew that a limitation in ADLs was put somebody at high risk for falling. So my theory was that if we improve ADL performance, then we'll reduce fall risk. It seemed to make perfect sense to me as a therapist and from what I'd seen clinically. 
And so I um, was fortunate to be funded to do a clinical trial looking at the at if we improved ADL performance, if it would reduce fall risk. And it was an early study. I think it was probably one of the best design studies I've ever had with regard to rigor. I blinded the participants to the outcome. They did not know that I was studying falls. I told them that I was studying ADLs, and we had some clever strategies we used to, to figure out, um, to keep that from our participants. And so we did a, a one-year follow-up study. We, we did an intervention that targeted ADL, uh, ADL performance, very client-centered, and we followed people for a year. And what we discovered at the end of that year was that if we target ADL performance, we improve ADL performance, and it has virtually no impact on fall outcomes. So it was um, it was a painful lesson for me, but an exciting lesson nonetheless. It taught me one of the things that I think is so important, that what we target is what we can intervene upon, which is what we're effective with. And the other important thing I learned was that people who are at risk for falls need to understand the fall risk. It's not just changing the environment and teaching people to be more independent in getting in and out of the bathtub. It's actually showing people where the risks are for falls while you're transferring out of the bathtub and teaching people to be careful and to be thoughtful about those fall risks that they're taking. So it's really a self-management plus environmental intervention that's the secret sauce for, for fall prevention. So that's the big difference. Um, it's a very nuanced difference. And that's what our, um, our second study, the targeted fall behavior specifically as well as removing hazards in the home. And we found that it reduced the fall rate. Same group of people, same kind of situation. We were able to reduce the fall rate by about 30% in that, in that sample. So what you target matters and what you tell people matters. And people need to understand what, what they're working on to help them be successful in preventing falls. That's fascinating um, and really interesting how sometimes what may be perceived as a failure can lead to adding this whole new study of, of really excellent research um, that can help practitioners in providing the best care possible to, to someone who may be a fall risk. Absolutely. I think of that as successfully failing. I love, so we, we, um, we, we have a motto in our lab, which is mm -hmm. fail better. Fail better every time so we can get to the heart of the matter. That's what we do. I love that. I love that. Thank you for sharing. And I wanted to ask you kind of a, a follow-up. You mentioned how helping someone recognize, I guess, what about a certain transfer or a certain, you mentioned like getting out of the shower, what about that would cause them to fall? How do you recommend a practitioner educate someone on what presents a fall risk in the home and how they can avoid that? So we have a, um, we use a very, we have a manualized protocol that we use and we, we have what we call our, our essential ingredients and our active ingredients to all of our, our treatments. And so the essential ingredient for a home hazard removal program is obviously removing the hazards. The active ingredients are the way that we go about it. So we use strategies for motivational interviewing to help people understand what their risks are and what they can do about it. Building kind of a competence, if you will, for them as we go through the process where a therapist might help teach more in the beginning, but by the end, the individual 
is going through a process of identifying and, and um, shared decision-making to help people understand how they can identify barriers, identify potential solutions to barriers, and then make decisions about why they might or might not want that barrier removal plan as part of their treatment care. And they, they become kind of the, the drivers of their own intervention development. So while we start out with them and help them see what the fall risk is, by the time we finish the treatment sessions, we're hoping that they're the ones that are identifying and um, solving new problems. So we use a series of, of very successful uh, strategies that are used in other therapy that, that any practitioner can adopt. Shared decision-making, motivational interviewing, client-centeredness, tailoring. These are all things that, that all practitioners can use that we found are highly effective in this intervention. That's great. Thank you for sharing those um, specific strategies. It really just uh, emphasizes to me that when you help a client come up with their own strategy or to generate their own strategy that comes from them, I think they're a lot more likely to follow through with that strategy. Absolutely. Awesome. Um, one question I'm excited to ask you as well is if you'd like to share some innovative new ways um, that therapists or practitioners can implement environmental modifications. So like what are innovative modifications that we make? Yes. Okay. So when you've seen one home modification plan, you've seen one home modification plan. Um, this is the secret, I think, to why occupational therapists are the most effective uh, profession to do intervention. Evidence shows us their interventions are the most effective at reducing fall risks or improving function. And it's because we take this client-centered approach we evaluate carefully the abilities or capacities of each individual and recognize that every context is different and we carefully assess the context as well. And it's really understanding what the person environment matches that will then help you generate ideas for how you can solve environmental um, barriers. So in some cases, the solutions are pretty easy and pretty basic. You know, they can be um, adding a grab bar, or it can be figuring out where the right type of um, can opener might be for a person's kitchen. So that it's not necessarily sexy or innovative new products, but ways that we can use everyday things to solve the, the problem for that individual person. Um, that said, sometimes people look at our list of interventions that we use and they say, really? So some of our most popular um, interventions are things like a Roomba for somebody that is not able to, and that's a, a robotic vacuum cleaner for somebody that's not able to independently vacuum their house anymore. That's been one strategy that's been very popular of late. Um, I would say we've had some innovative ways that we tackle problems like getting in and out of the shower. So it's still using those those regular old strategies like tub transfer benches, but we might have to do them in a novel way because the bathroom's pretty small, or there's a turtle living in the bathtub at the same place that a person needs to shower. So those are, it's not that exciting when it comes down to what the products are, but it's pretty exciting for the person that's able to independently take a shower with or without their turtle um, in the, going forward. Absolutely. Really, it, it seems like the ordinary becomes the extraordinary when someone is 
enabled to do something they previously couldn't. Um, and it sounds like that's what these kind of innovative or, or creative ideas for environmental modifications do. Yeah, I learned that very early on. Um, one of my first studies was in the naturally occurring retirement community, and um, we worked really hard to get our first study organized and implemented. And it was with big fanfare that we had our first um, participant go through the research process. And she um, had been unable to turn her bathroom faucet on and off because she had severe rheumatoid arthritis. She would um, have to either go brush her teeth in the kitchen sink or she would wait till someone came over to turn the water on for her, but she was unable to manipulate her faucet. And so we just put in a really simple lever faucet. And... Um, and I was going, the contractor had just installed it, and the, the, the naturally occurring retirement community or Newark folks wanted to make a big um, press conference about it. And as a new, uh, a new scientist, I really was kind of secretly disappointed because I wanted it to be some fancy ramp or some innovative piece of equipment, that, and it was just a silly old lever handle. And um, I was very humbled that day because as the woman walked in and turned her faucet on for the first time in years, she burst into tears and talked about how meaningful it was for her that she was able to independently do her her um, her own self-care, and it had been so long. And I was just so mad at myself for all this time thinking that a lever faucet wasn't pretty cool because in that case, you're exactly right. For this person at that moment, it was the most important piece of equipment that we could provide. So, so that's my humbling moment that I that I carry with me to remember how important it is to do some of those things. Well, thank you so much for sharing that moment with me and with all of our listeners. Uh, I think there's so much to learn from you and the research you've done and your expertise. So, thank you. Mm-hmm. I know a little bit before this we talked about prevent the preventative role that OT can play mm-hmm. in preventing falls and preventing someone from ever even coming to the clinic. Um, can you speak more about that, um, maybe how an OT practitioner can more fully help prevent falling? Yeah, yeah. I, um, I have never I run across something that um, in my profession, I felt it's such a powerful impact that I can have on, on um, prevention. I, it, occupational therapists are, there's very few interventions that we have that are as effective as, as home hazard removal. Um, but yet, so few practitioners actually deliver the intervention, and I'm not sure why, why that, why we're in this position. Other than the fact that we work in these traditional medical models in most cases, so we are in a clinic and we're not thinking about those older adults that are living among us out in our community and that um, that we might be able to significantly impact. So I've been thinking a lot about how, as a profession, we can begin to influence um, fall prevention. And the first thing that I think about is that we don't have enough therapists that know how to deliver the intervention. It's not part of our standard curriculum in most cases to teach people how to do fall prevention interventions. And so I think that's the first thing I'm excited about thinking about is how we can train the next generation. So everybody that walks out um, that will come in contact with an older adult knows how to deliver this intervention. The other thing I'm thinking about these days is how we develop new and innovative partnerships with community agencies like area agencies on aging or 
or primary care physicians um, or insurance companies who are really interested in what we have to offer. And I, I see this kind of gulf between therapists who have the potential to deliver this incredibly powerful intervention and the folks that need it and the people that are willing to pay us for it. So I, I'm really thinking these days about implementation and how that's going to happen and how we're going to be able to, A, get folks trained to deliver the intervention, and B, reach the folks that need what we have to offer. So I think it's going to be a, a complex issue that we're just figuring out now. I know the American Occupational Therapy Association is really interested in fall prevention and how we as providers can be more available. Um, I, I think it's going to be uh, on the part of some really, um, really creative entrepreneurs that will figure out how to deliver a new service that's not necessarily hospital-based. Or maybe it is hospital-based, but it's a new service line that, that isn't a traditional kind of visit folks in the clinic and as they come after they've had a hip fracture. I'd like to prevent the hip fracture from actually happening in the first place. Um, and you bring up a, a good point that maybe a lot of therapists aren't trained to offer this type of intervention right now. And some of the protocols you've developed, you've been able to manualize mm -hmm. and um, provide uh, to therapists. Where can they access those protocols or, or manuals or be trained on how to deliver home modification intervention? So we have two interventions that are manualized that are um, available in our lab, and, and folks can visit our lab site, a website. Um, we try to do some, uh, we're trying to figure out innovative new models for training that we can, um, so we can offer this to a broader audience that, um, that can, uh, and hopefully maybe even some online training that's not ready yet, but we're hoping it will be in the future. So I, uh, connecting with therapists that are currently delivering this intervention, there's lots of folks that are doing home months across the U.S. And then realizing that a lot of this is just a simple matter of being a good therapist and taking a peek at somebody's house. Um, a lot of the problems that people are experiencing, most OTs are well equipped to, to address and deal with. So if you have a person who's had a stroke, for example, and they're getting ready to be discharged, um, it's pretty rare these days that there's a home visit that occurs as part of, of that discharge plan. But in fact, best practice would suggest that everybody that's going home after a stroke should have a home assessment. And so making sure that you talk to your um, clinical manager and see if home visits can be part of, of how you deliver your care. And then keeping in mind that it might not just be function, but it might also be fall prevention that you might want to take a look at as you're um, doing a home assessment in someone's house. So I think there's things we can do today that can prevent some falls, um, and I think there's some things that will be coming down in the future as people become more engaged and learn how to deliver intervention. So connect with somebody that has done it before if you're nervous, um, and then certainly check out our website if you want to see what we're up to. Um, AOTA, I think, has a list um, and a special interest section of home and community-based care, and there are lots of practitioners out there who are um, who are really, really strong in delivering these types of interventions. You mentioned that best practice would support uh, someone being discharged from the hospital to receive a home visit. Um, I wanted to ask, what might it look like if a clinician doesn't do one of those home visits, if a clinician doesn't fully look at the home prior to someone transitioning back? 
I think that's a, a great question. So um, there are lots of times that I've been called in to do things that, so, uh, and I'll, I'll hear from the participant when, uh, when I call them. A therapist came out after I was um, visiting out, or a therapist, sorry, sent some things home after I was in outpatient care. So I think I'm good. I, I think there's nothing to be done. And I'll go to the home and I, I remember one home, it was a woman who'd had a series of strokes and she'd gone through outpatient rehab um, several times. And I was asked by a physician to just go take a peek at the house to see what was going on because this person wasn't functioning in a way that he felt she could potentially function and he couldn't figure out what the problem was. And when I, when I knocked on her door and she opened it in the living room, I literally found six bathtub benches, the same make and model, that were piled in her living room. There were two more that were actually piled in her bathtub that she couldn't get into anymore. And, you know, the therapist just asked the question, are you able to get into the bathtub? And she said no. And so they kept sending the same tub bench over and over. And the truth was the person had um, an old clawfoot tub, and that tub bench, no matter what we did to it, was never going to work for that participant. And she needed a special kind of tub bench and a special kind of training to learn to use her bench in her home. So we ended up donating those um, tub benches to a, um, a, a device reuse closet, and we got her the right tub bench that she needed, and she was able to be independent. But it struck me that um, no therapist in their right mind would have sent that tub bench one more time had they just taken a look at the home to see what was there, to see what was possible. So to me, it goes back to remembering measuring the person is one element of an assessment. You also have to understand the environment. So that, that was an important kind of take-home message for me. Absolutely. And I think that would be an important take-home message for me and all of our listeners as well. There's only so much you can learn about someone's environment through an occupational interview uh, that really you just can't learn unless you're actually there in the, in the moment. I agree. Would you want to go into some more depth on maybe some of the aspects or steps involved in uh, your compass and HARP interventions for listeners that may be interested in learning more? Sure. So um, our compass intervention is designed to help people transition home after they've gone through rehab. In this case, it's uh, for people who've had a stroke. And um, we, the intervention does a few things that seem obvious and logical, but don't typically happen in the regular rehab process. The first thing we do is just what you and I just talked about, is we, before somebody's discharged from rehab, we take them on a home visit so we can better understand um, the types of barriers they might experience in their home and community. So um, our goal is that by the time everybody in our, and this is a randomized controlled trial that we're currently um, conducting, so our treatment group gets, uh, everybody gets a home visit because everyone should. Um, the treatment group gets an intervention. At that moment, we design, we make sure they can get in their house, they can get on and off their toilet, and they can make a sandwich. So before they get discharged home, those things we know they'll be independent in doing. The control group gets um, education. So we won't talk about the control group anymore. Okay. We'll keep talking about the treatment group. As they progress through treatment, we take that information back to their treating therapists in the rehab hospital. So the OTs and PTs and speech and language pathologists, whoever's working with the person, knows what kinds of barriers they have in their home. 
so that they can tailor their interventions um, in the hospital to help kind of address some of those potential barriers that might be coming up. Once the person's discharged, we go into the home with them uh, a couple day, a couple of visits just to practice those basic ADLs that they probably mastered in the clinic bathroom, but not, might not have mastered in their own personal bathrooms. And we continue to tweak the modifications and the strategies the person uses till they're independent and their basic ADLs. And then we start kind of turning our attention to community participation because we think that it's not just important that you're independent at home, but that you're able to become an import, a member of society as you were, again, kind of reintegrating into your community. So we look at things like, where do you want to get home? What do you want to be able to do to return to your life? We read some really interesting qualitative interviews that people who have had a stroke go home and wait for six months to get better, thinking that everything's going to get back to normal and then they'll get back to their lives. And it, it doesn't happen that way. So our goal is to get people out into the community as quickly as possible. So they pick the activities that they want to do. We've had things like going to my granddaughter's basketball game, going back to church, going to meet some lady friends, and maybe starting to date again. Those are some of the goals that um, some of our participants have had so far. And the therapist, um, in this case, it's hard to, um, you can't really change the community environment as easily as you change the home environment. So our focus at this point is on identifying barriers and then figuring out ways around those barriers, whether it's advocating on your own behalf to your minister so that you can, you know, get the door unlocked with the accessible ramp, or it might be um, talking to the school principal so that you can get a reserved um, uh, parking spot or reserved seating um, that's accessible in the gym so you can watch the basketball game, teaching people to advocate on their behalf and to resolve barriers. Um, we've taught people how to get color rides so that they can, um, if they can no longer drive, they can get out and, and access the community with some type of transportation. So those are the kinds of things that we do. So it's about six visits, and um, at the end of the six visits, we're hoping that people learn enough from what we've taught them to begin to continue to advocate on their own behalf and continue to resolve those barriers as they pop up. So that study's underway. Our, our pilot data looked really strong. We found people had improved um, participation outcomes uh, after that intervention compared to the control group, and we're, uh, we're hoping to see that um, in this, this larger trial that we have going on that should finish up in about two years. So that's the, the stroke intervention that we're working on. We're currently looking at how we can adapt that intervention for people who are aging with long-term physical disabilities. So these are folks that maybe got discharged from rehab when they were 16 after their spinal cord injury, or maybe they um, had cerebral palsy and they've been discharged, you know, they graduated from high school and they kind of left rehab behind, mm -hmm. and they've been successful, independent adults in our community, and now they're in their 40s and 50s. And we're learning that um, they have some kind of accelerated aging process. So living with this long-term disability has kind of accelerated the rate at which they get some kinds of chronic diseases that we see in older adults when they're 60 and 70. And that's impacting their function. And so while they're out in the community, um, independent at this point, some of the things that um, we see when people turn 70 are happening to them when they're 40, and some of their function is at risk, and some of them are perhaps not going out as much as they used to or, or not staying employed as they used to. So we're 
hoping that we can use some of these strategies um, that we've learned with folks who have been transitioning home after stroke to see if we can help um, people that are living in the community because they don't really have anywhere to turn right now. So that's what we're doing with that function intervention. For our home hazard removal program, HARP, we're pretty excited that we were, dem we were able to demonstrate a 30% reduction in falls for um, older adults at risk um, in the community, and these are primarily more frail, older, older adults. And so we decided to do an effectiveness or a pragmatic trial. So if we think it works, we are gonna, we've um, worked with a really great community partner, St. Andrews in St. Louis, and they have about 10 Section 202 housing units. These are senior apartments for, for older adults, mostly in underserved communities. And there's 10 of them, and so we're delivering the intervention across all 10 of these housing units. We're doing a design called a step wedge design. We can't deliver all the interventions at once, so we've randomized who gets the treatment first, and we're systematically um, rolling these apartment buildings in, and we're monitoring falls um, across the whole time period. So people who've gotten treatment are going to be in the treatment group, and while they're waiting for treatment, they're going to be their own controls. So it's a, a pragmatic design to see if we know it works, and this randomized control trial, will it work in the real world? And that's what we're exploring right now. That's fascinating. And I know I definitely want to follow up and stay up to date on the results of uh, this COMPASS and HARP studies um, because I think they can have really big implications for fall prevention and improved function of people with disabilities. So thank you for that. I wanted to ask, it seems like a, a theme, especially of, of the COMPASS program, is the importance of that home visit um, and seeing the home environment. And I wanted to ask what you might recommend to a practitioner who might currently be working in a setting where they aren't seeing the home. Um, how could they maybe advocate to, to start incorporating that into their practice? I think that's a great question. The, the first thing I recommend is, so we, meant, we talked about stroke, for example. The, clinical, the stroke clinical guidelines recommend a home visit. So I think being aware of that and bringing that to the attention of the folks that get to decide whether or not you do a home assessment would be the first step, is knowing what the guidelines are that are out there and how. And then knowing the evidence. The evidence says we get better outcomes if we do this. So um, encouraging encouraging all therapists out there to use their evidence as a as kind of a uh, a resource to to argue for some of these opportunities. I think the other the other thing to do is if it can't happen, um, if you're in a in a facility that refuses because of time or productivity limitations to allow therapists. Um, rethink if that's the place that you want to work. Find maybe if that's important to you in your practice, that's what I've had to do in the past is find another place to practice. Um, so that's something that's kind of an extreme, but that's um, something that, that I've personally done in the past and something that is possible. And but but usually if you can't talk your your supervisor into allowing you to do a home visit then trying to connect with a community group that can. So making sure that you connect to the next therapist and make the appropriate referral so you can find somebody that might be able to follow up. 
And some innovative ways to do that might be calling the area agency on aging if it's an older adult um, to see if there's a therapist they work with that might be able to do that home assessment. Um, connecting with Rebuilding Together. Rebuilding Together is a national organization that often works with occupational therapists to do home assessments for people to help make modifications if they can't afford it. So there's some different um, strategies that I think uh, we could creatively use to try to make sure people get touched if, if there's not a mechanism for them to get a home modification through some source that they have. I think figuring out that it's a viable option and model within you know, making sure that if you do go on a home visit, following manualized protocols to make sure that you're delivering um, care as effectively and efficiently as possible um, to get the outcomes that your, uh, your, your community facility wants to have would be another way to do it. To just be so good at your job that people can't imagine you not doing a home visit because the outcomes are so impressive. Those are the kind of things to keep in mind um, as you're doing home visit, if you're allowed to go. <laughs> yes, thank you for sharing um, that advice and those different action steps that practitioners could take um, to really fill that gap. And that reminds me kind of, uh, we started out this interview and you mentioned that the thing that led you to do this research was identifying a gap. And then that has led to, you know, grants being uh, awarded to you to, to do this research and find these outcomes and is improving health outcomes. Uh, and I wanted to ask what you might say to uh, a young practitioner that might be thinking about pursuing something but unsure. Uh, what have you learned and can share to someone to, to help them really take action and, and go for it, kind of like you did? I think the bottom line is it's always easy to do this when you remember that for me, it's the people that matter. And, you know, when you find those, when you find those um, patients or those research participants or clients in your life that, that motivate you, it's really easy to stay up late and write another grant to try to make a difference in their lives. Um, so I think to connect with why you became a therapist and to always remember that is probably to make a difference and to help people get back to their lives. So, for me, it's always remembering that's why I did this, and that helps me, that helps, that fuels my energy when I'm kind of lagging. I'm thinking, oh, I just can't get this grant done by the deadline. I, I usually can if I think back to the people who I know it's going to impact the most. Sometimes I think when we get caught up in productivity demands or, you know, the, whatever uh, drama's going on at the workplace, um, it's easy to lose sight of, of why we do this job. So always stay connected to those those folks that you intended to help because for me that makes the biggest difference in, in how I'm able to keep keep pushing when things seem like they're hard or I'm facing a barrier. Thank you for sharing that insight and perspective. I always like to ask, I call this our golden nugget segment, um, and you may have already touched on some of this, but I want to ask if you could tell OT practitioners one thing, what would it be? So the thing I would tell, that I would tell OT practitioners is make sure that you stay true to what you know is right. If I had done what folks told me to do, which was just let the Medicare keep paying for a bath aid, I wouldn't have had my research career. So always stay true to what you believe is right. So if you're told we don't do home visits, have to believe that. We know that 
the central tenet of our profession is that we understand context. And to understand context, we need to get into that context. So don't believe, don't believe the system that tells you we don't need to look at context. We do. Context matters. Don't be the therapist that sends one more bathtub bench to somebody's house to get stacked up in the middle. Be brave. Go into people's homes. See how they live. Understand the challenges that they're facing so that you can address them with them. Because that, to me, has been the most rewarding thing. It's when people can turn on their faucet or they can get back to their granddaughter's basketball game. That's why we do this. Context matters. Don't be afraid to go check it out. That's great advice. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. um, and thank you again for your time and your preparation. Uh, this was really fun, and I know I learned a lot, and I'm sure all of our listeners did too. Well, thanks. Thanks for your interest. I think this is a fun topic. I hope, I hope lots of people will be interested in how they can improve the environment for folks with disabilities. Yes, I, I hope so too. Thanks for listening to How to OT. Tune in next time for another episode where we bring accessible and consumable research straight to you. Hey, I'm on vacation. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it. Hey, I'm on vacation every single day because I love my occupation. Hey, I'm on vacation every single day, every, every single day. I'm on vacation every single day Cause I love my occupation Hey, I'm on vacation every single day Every, every single day Everybody sour like a lemon tree I'm just smiling down upon my enemies Do the shit and love it on a daily Say you hate your job but you'll never leave Never leave but that it wasn't easy But right now I'm living breezy Build ascension from the ground up now my hands So thankful for everything Rejuvenating my inner light as I work hard for all I need Open arms, embracing life, and all the which you gave to me I work, it pays off, I'm happy now, it's paying me Close my eyes, sometimes I feel as if I blow away I love the life, I live and enjoy the ride along the way I'll make a living out of living, yeah, that's what I say I got one life to live and I wouldn't live no other way on vacation every single day cause I love my occupation hey, hey, hey. I'm on vacation every single day every every single day hey, I'm on vacation every single day cause I love my occupation hey, hey, hey. I'm on vacation if you don't like your life then you should go and change it should go and change it if you don't like your life then you should go and change it if you don't like your life then you should go and change it